Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got a very interesting one for you today. Murder, espionage, intrigue and a global threat. All this and more can be found in James Phelan's The Agency. So James, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Now I want to start in a most unusual place. It's where the bullet actually goes through the glass um, and it's quite intriguing. Um, Then the third bullet found a target in the top third of the Crown Vic's windscreen right where the passenger was seated. A car windscreen is made up of laminated glass. Two layers of glass and a layer of plastic sandwiched in between to hold the glass together if it breaks, usually around a quarter inch thick, sometimes thicker, sometimes with another layer of plastic tint or solar reflective coating designed to withstand rocks being kicked up on highways and to keep the outside out, developed over decades to protect occupants. A 9mm lead bullet, in this case a regular metal jacketed round, had 115 grams of mass, fired from the Glock at a velocity of over 1,200 feet per second. The Crown Vic's forward momentum was immaterial to the question. The bullet was designed to kill people, developed by arms companies for accuracy, reliability and to inflict maximum damage. In this case, the windscreen was already weakened and the bullet hit right on the mark, and while it deflected and deflagrated, enough of the subsonic mass found its way into the face of the greystone passenger. The result was a puff of red mist, and in the next second, as the Crown Vicks careened across the road and the Mini flashed by it, Walker saw that the guy was down and out, his brain matter splattered against the side window. Now, what? the reason I read out that, the detail... In terms of glass, in terms of bullets, velocity, weight of the bullet, where do you get all this information from? Ah, well, probably Wikipedia. Who knows? (laughs) Where where do I get this? So uh, this novel, it's a thriller. It's called The Agency. It's uh, my 10th thriller, uh, the fifth with that character, Jed Walker. And the passage that you're reading out there, it's probably, it's almost halfway through the book. Uh, and it is a moment of, of action. Uh, but basically what I'm doing with that scene is ramping up the suspense. So if I've got a bit of a mantra when it comes to writing, it's to uh, do the slow stuff fast and the fast stuff slow. So I'm really just slowing the reader down as things are happening quite quickly. And it seems probably a bit counterintuitive, but from a building point of view, and I, I always look at uh, crafting a story or writing a novel um, as a sort of a building process and it's probably because of my architectural background but um, as I'm creating that scene it's uh, really just a matter of me going okay you know because by then we're halfway through so the reader's hopefully comfortable in my hands and uh, I'm really slowing things down teasing them out so you really enjoy it but in terms of craft for writing in this genre how important it is it to have that intricate detail? Because well, all the way through, glocks and all the sort of equipment that, that you come across. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. It's, um, it's something over time, and I've been a full-time author for 12 years. It's, um, I've probably, I'm probably doing this less and less. There's a fine line between doing a bit of an information dump, uh, which I think the, the starting out 
uh, or the novice novelist would uh, do. Uh, but if this is information that's sort of pertinent to the story, to the character, then it has a place in there. So in this instance, you do need a little bit of that tech porn, uh, which I think Tom Clancy, if for this uh, for this genre, he really redefined things. He and um, uh, Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park and uh, Andromeda Strain and all these sorts of books, uh, they really got down to the technical side of things and created what was a, a subgenre of the thrillers, uh, techno thriller. But it's that intimate detail that yep. gives it authenticity. Well, look, the thing is, if I get it wrong, my first hundred or two hundred emails from around the world are from readers who, you know, they're saying, "Look, I work for Glock, and uh, <laughs> our G17 actually fires at 140 feet per second." You know, so it's that sort of thing, or an armaments company will send me a thing, and they're like, "Look, listen, if you really weigh that bullet, you just, you know, <laughs> by the time it's fired, you're actually losing two grams of mass." So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, look, it's that's um, one of those things. I do get picked up if I make a mistake. Every book has one or two, so I try and get it as accurate as I can. But like I said, for me, that kind of scene, it's all about. Uh, creating suspense. Let's broaden the horizon then. You've got all the military equipment and and gunfire going on, but you've now got more than one agency. The book's called The Agency, but we've got an agency called Greystone, and it's quite uh, a problematic uh, sort of agency. Companies like Greystone are the future. Governments won't be doing the spying or the killing for much longer. They're losing the stomach for it. The private sector is more efficient, and we get things done in a way that the squeamish politicians can look away from, and that allows them to keep getting themselves re-elected. They value us. They like us. What interests me is the implication um, associated with commercial operations taking over spying, basically. Yeah, sure. Well, the agency, the novel, is uh, set in 2005, so it's the first prequel that I've written, and I wanted to look at when my character, Jed Walker, first uh, signs up, I guess, or starts his role with the CIA, which is the agency that sort of, you know, the title comes from. Um, And in 2005, one of the things that we really saw a proliferation of was uh, private contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. So until then, we just knew them as mercenaries and uh, they weren't that big a thing, but they were were around. Uh, But 2005 or 2003 onwards, we started to see companies like Blackwater... Halliburton uh, and such like yeah, that. Yeah, KBR. They're They're putting literally tens of thousands of boots on the ground and... Uh, the same goes for intelligence as well. There are many uh, private intelligence uh, corporations and entities out there. And uh, one that springs to mind is the uh, the wonderful people who put together the steel dossier on uh, <laughs> Donald Trump. So the private spies and private armies, they are around. Governments do like to use them because they're cheaper. Uh, they are also, uh, you know, there's less liability involved because there's not that congressional oversight. But yes, these are some of the implications. Though. There might not be congressional oversight, but they've got political clout. They've got connections. I mean, Rumsfeld was connected to Halliburton. That's right. I mean, all those guys, you know, you look at the Bush uh, administration, which was, you know, we're talking George W. Bush here, and he was uh, he's president during the tenure of this book. Um, but I've actually, you know, I've just written a book about Donald Trump, which I can't really talk about because it's all contractual and stuff. And I've spent a lot of time researching this over the past year. And uh, the company formerly known as Blackwater, which has hundreds of thousands of troops all around the world in private armies, 
Um, I mean, the guy in charge of that, and we won't get too deep because we don't want to die too soon. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he is very involved with the Trump administration and, and oh, setting yeah. up all sorts of back channels through to Russia. His sister is uh, the <laughs> secretary for the uh, education department in the Trump administration. The a lot of the money that was being laundered through Trump Tower, and this will come out, you know, with all the indictments and, and jail terms coming up, yeah. that was funneled through her husband's company. Oh, so wow. it's uh, it's one of those things. But you get this notion that the normal trope is that the general or the major has gone rogue, but now with the fact that these agencies have a commercial imperative, they're not bound by nationalism or patriotism. And again, it's a scary thing. I mean, war is literally their business. So it's not in their interests to uh, bring any of these things to a conclusion. So if you look at the trouble yeah. that's going on in this day in uh, in Afghanistan, particularly, a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the weaponry, a lot of the funding is coming through uh, private contractors from Russia to sort of keep that thing going. Why are they doing that? Do they want to just sort of degrade and, and keep NATO busy over there? I mean, there's, there's lots of things to look at. But look, it, it's a, it is a bit of a scary one when you've just got guys going around working for private companies. It's sort of harking back to the days of like the East India Company and, and when they were the biggest you know, player on the, on the map. But to add another dimension, you've also got a global threat and you keep reminding us throughout the novel, it's not nuclear but it's a global threat. Yeah. How do you invent such things? How do you make them plausible? Because it is plausible. Yeah, look, in this book, uh, the agency, I I do have this sort of, I guess, McGovern, if we use a, a story writing term from Hitchcock. And uh, in this book, it's this sort of, you know, it's this weapons platform that the bad guys want and the good guys, I guess, want to prevent from falling into uh, their hands. And because this was a prequel set way back in 2005 and I say way back because I've written some books in there and it seems like a bit of a nightmare in terms of uh, <laughs> creativity since but uh, my first novel was published in 2006 and this book because it predates that and because a lot of the characters from this book are in that first novel I thought okay well hang on a second if I'm going back to that time what can I do that might help set up that book way back then so uh, that book was called Fox Hunt. Uh, it was very much a first book. It has its, you know, the typical first book uh, problems and things I'd like to fix. But I'm a firm believer uh, any novel or any form of art is a time and place. You know, it's a little snapshot of the time and place it was created in. So uh, that book was all about this orbital weapons platform, which was uh, a little thing left over from the uh, Russians or Soviets in Chechnya. And uh, I thought, okay, I might uh, have a look at that, see where that could sort of fit in here. So it's like some guidance. Uh, well, I won't give too don't much give, away. Don't give it away. I Let know, the reader discover for it themselves. But you know what? It's really, that's just the thing, propelling, uh, propelling the narrative and propelling our, uh, our timeline. But ultimately, you know, as you've uh, pointed out a couple story threads here, it's, it's not what the story's about. Well, the story is about, uh, well, all these agencies and subdiffusion and such like. But into this morass of agencies and commercialism and such like comes Jed Walker. And right at the beginning, now that we've sort of come back to the individual in question, it uh, 
pertains to his training, his entering the CIA agency. But what intrigues me is how one can willingly give oneself up to the agency. Uh, you, um, your first op, is this a live op or a final test? Walker asked. Does it matter? Richter looked at him. Working for the CIA, no one knows what you're doing. Not your friends, not your co-workers. If you're undercover, not your loved ones. Sometimes not even you know what you've, you're really doing. It's a lonely life, but you get used to it. Guess it doesn't matter then if it's a real op or a test, Walker said. But it'd be handy to know if an issue comes up and the use of force is required. It is what it is, and you should assume that what we tell you to do must be done at all costs, any which way it plays out, Richter said, looking back at, out to the road ahead. Look, either way, Walker, your future at the agency depends on your success. You fail this first op, you're out. You pass this one but fail the next one, you're out. And so on. Got it? Got it. So giving yourself into... Situations like that, it would seem absurd to trust any agency. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Walker really learns this one the hard way through, uh, through the other books as well in terms of trust. And look, for, he as, for him as a character, he's, uh, he's gone through already about a 10-year career uh, in the US Air Force. So he's very much used to following orders and um, I guess towing a line and, and not questioning too much. And um, it's one of those things that as an author and doing a lot of book touring through the US, and I've got a lot of friends now who are either serving or, or ex-military or in intelligence, and uh, they pretty much just sort of trust their gut as they go along. And they, uh, they pretty much do what they're told. But the opening of the novel, he's virtually betrayed, set in, sent into a situation where his life is threatened and he has to extricate himself, but he doesn't know why he's there. Yeah, that's right. And it's a pretty tight first person, uh, sorry, third person narrative where we're following Walker around and uh, we're always sort of, you know, just looking over his shoulder and figuring things out as he does. And I think that works pretty well with this one in terms of uh, him questioning things as he goes along and unravelling the plot for us. Well, who would, who would put themselves in that sort of situation? I've got one last question, basically. You've got this set. Uh, it's the structure of it. It's over four days, which adds to the intensity, but it's set against the backdrop of Hurricane Katrina. Is yeah. there a reason for that? Look, there is. I mean, 2005, that was, that was a big event. Uh, I knew pretty much I wanted to set this in New Orleans. And uh, I've been through some cyclones and hurricanes myself, uh, including one in the US, uh, was Hurricane Hugo. And I just remember being chased across from Florida and along the Gulf, and uh, it was a similar sort of trajectory at the time and until Andrew and then until Katrina, that was the worst, um, worst to hit. And I just thought, wow, that's, you know, it's really something uh, to cover off in there, but you know what, I didn't make it so much of a character in there. It's not even named as Katrina uh, unless you look at the blurb on the back <laughs> or uh, or until you literally get to the final paragraph in the book and then reflecting on that and in the epilogue, there's a bit of text in there that really sort of goes, well, hang on a second. It makes the reader think through uh, Walker's viewpoint, hey, what's our response to that? You know, where how are we going to be seen as not just a nation, he's talking from the viewpoint of an American, but, uh, you know, uh, how have we treated fellow uh, humanity here? And that, I think, just uh, sort of reflects his journey through there and also the agency and the questions and 
and answers that we should be asking. Well, we've got a global threat there that uh, it sort of surpasses what mankind can create. But we're going to have to hand over to Jan because she's got a phone, a phone interview, but I was talking to James Phelan about the agency. Jan. Thank you, David, and thank you, James. And I would like to invite um, Shakuve Azar. Hello, Shakuve. Oh, hello, Jan. How are you? Good. Now, unfortunately, Shakuve um, couldn't come in to, to our studio today, but I do want to ask you about your book, your wonderful book, The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree. Whereabouts is this book oh. set? Yeah, thank you. So this book is about uh, Iran and it's about the experience of living under the dictatorship of Islamic regime uh, after 1979. Uh, so this novel is about a five member of a family after Islamic revolution. This family is not a traditional people like traditional Iranian. They are actually kind of intellectual Iranian. So this is why they can tolerate this regime and the whole story and the things happen to them. That's right. You write in the story that they move out of Tehran and uh, to a tiny little village, a very remote uh, village called Razan. And it's here that the mother, Rosa, refuses. She says, I will not wear this headscarf. I do not want to you know, go and, and socialise with people who are made to wear it. And of course, the father is a czar player and builder. He, he makes these musical instruments. And it is because of these musical instruments the revolutionaries come and they burn them. What yes. happens what happens to the daughter? Uh, yes, uh, Bahar is the uh, smallest girl of the family and she was uh, underground of the house and uh, the place that was a studio of the father, Hushang. He was a instru- music instrumental maker and he also could play that, play the music. And uh, uh, when uh, angry revolutionary, exactly the same day of the, when this revolution happened, attacked to them and say that all kind of music instrumental is ha- haram. It means they are not right to play. So we want to burn it and they be- they want to burn the, ho- the whole uh, a studio, but just uh, she was so bad luck. Bahar was so bad luck that she, in the same time she was there, and because she is scared of them, she just uh, hides herself under the table and the desk. But unfortunately, she burned too. So it means the revolutionary didn't want to kill her, but accidentally they did. Mm. And then in the chapter five, the readers just recognize that the narrator of this story is Bahar. It means the ghost of. So having a ghost being able to move around, she's able to report about what the family is doing and also what's happening in Tehran and uh, other cities with the revolution. Here, you've written a lot of personal stories. It's very sad to read about that young boy who ate a green gauge plum through Ramadan and what happened to him. Very yes. sad. And mm, yeah, there were so many. So I was journalist for more than 10 years in Tehran, uh, capital city of Iran, and I heard and I read and I was uh, evidence of so many sad stories that happen all the time across the, the country. And this one will also happen to one of my very close friends who was 
eating, uh, he was just 15 years old and he was eating something small like Greengage uh, in the street in during of the Ramadan and suddenly revolutionary came and arrested him and tortured him in front of everybody. And people just look at him without any reaction, unfortunately. No, nobody tries yes, to... Yes, there is so many so he goes to another country, and when everybody asks, and where are you from, he lies and he says, Greece, because he, he's not proud of being yes. uh, um, being from Iran. Yes. Look, um, there's, yes. a lot of, there's a lot of true things, I'm sure, as a reporter, you know that happened, but you take this book another step into magic realism. You make us... Yes. Oh, it's just lovely, lovely writing about the 5,000 people who were executed, their tears flooding down. And where was all this water going? Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, I wrote this book, Magic Realism, not because just Magic Realism is the style of that I like. Uh, I chose this because uh, when I want to write this book, I, I first ask myself, what is reality for you? So for me, reality is not only things that we seen in the, you know, as a human being. Uh, the reality for me is everything that emotionally I experience as a matter. It is part of reality, or it's part of dreams that I experience, or in spiritual moments that I had. So whole lot, when I look at the everything in my life and also uh, all culture in Iran, I, I recognize that reality for us is contained of lots of unreality. So people believe on ghosts, people believe on spirits, people believe on uh, fortune telling and dreams, interpreter of the dreams and everything. So if, uh, when I want to write this book, I said, okay, I want to express our culture. I don't want to just, as a journalist, write a history of, you know, our people, what happened to us after Islamic Republic. I want to show to Western people that what is our emotion, what happened to us, what is what we really feel about uh, this totalitarian totalitarian, uh, government, this uh, dictatorship regime. So in the sense that you mentioned, the people, the dead people, um, uh, tears, uh, like uh, flood coming and go to Khomeini house. Khomeini was leader of Islamic Republic. So they wanted to kind of revenge, but they didn't, they had no that power to do this. So I want to present the emotion. So this is why I choose that they still go to the Khomeini's bedroom and make him scare. So we have... Things like you know, you've, you've seen and you report on. Now, this is a quote: Juvenile political prison, prisoners were given the good fortune to be pardoned by the imam if they fired the final shot yeah. that would put the condemned out of their misery. Now, you, we have you write a lot about the truth of the horror that was happening with the people, but then we skip, and it's sort of this beautiful, light-hearted magic realism where you pick up um, things like the Persian fairy tales. The jinns, J-I-N-N-S. What are the jinns? So jinns is a kind of um, creature, actually. People, traditional people believe on, and I, actually it's named exactly in the Quran. In the Quran came, this name came, and uh, people believe it is a creature that the face and body look like human beings, but 
uh, his body is full of hair and it can be up here and disappear. They're, they're very, they can either be good or bad, but most of the ones you wrote about yeah. were pretty bad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> look, two last questions. What is yes. a green gauge tree? Why did you pick a green gauge tree? Yes, I know. It is a fruit, actually. A green, a small, plum fruit that is not very known in Australia or Western culture. But it is very popular in Iran and everybody loves this fruit. And, it, and also, I grew up in a farm that all farm was full of this tree. And this tree is very symbolic for me because I remember all of my childhood and I spent lots of time on top of this tree and it has a beautiful uh, blossom. So I chose this tree because it was symbolic for me. It was a symbol of um, tree of life. And uh, I hope by this novel people recognize, search and recognize what is this fruit. Well, when I went to Wikipedia, because you do this, to check up just what a green gauge tree was, there was all of these images and there was a photo of the cover of your book. How interesting. (laughs) Yes, so well done. And one one other congratulations is um, your long listing on the Stella Prize. Yes, it's right. Yeah, thank you. I'm thrilled to be in the list of the Stella Prize. That is fantastic. Okay, well, look, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Shokuve Azar and her book, a book, The Enlightenment of the Green Grage Tree by Wild Dingo Press. Thanks very much, Shokiva. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you. Bye. Actually, just a quick question here for James. In terms of, you've been talking about a totalitarian regime in Iran. How much is espionage totalitarianism uh, by default? <laughs> oh, look, it is. And uh, even listening now, I mean, a good friend of mine was uh, CIA station chief in Iran for a long time. And, um, you know, the revolution in 79 would never have happened had it not been for the CIA uh, overthrowing uh, Mossadegh in 51. So, I mean, it, the problems in Iran, and it's, um, you know, it's a terrible situation and has been for far too long, is all at the feet, not just of the CIA, but um, American administrations and business interests, because ultimately it was all just about oil and where those profits were going. Uh, well, that sided a little, and sorry if I went off the uh, microphone a little bit there, uh, <laughs> Just as I think more and more, my head tilts more and more down with the weight of the world. Um, yeah, look, it's uh, it's one of those things. And it's really, really scary. We spoke about, uh, you know, the private spies. The other scary aspect is when these totalitarian regimes of uh, whether it's Iran or China or Russia, where they use the uh, the state apparatus purely for their own political gain. And by their own political gain, I usually mean by lining their own pockets because that's what they're all doing. And for anyone who knows people who work in places like Iran or Saudi Arabia or what have you, um, the the hypocrisy is astounding. Where these people are, you know, in charge and inflicting all these you know brutal laws and suppressing the uh, population, yet they've got all these compounds in the Western uh, 
uh, sorry, all these uh, palatial places in the Western compounds, and uh, they're doing all sorts of things there. And uh, it's yeah, yeah, it's pitiful, bit of a worry. There must these agencies must have a dossier or two on you, basically, given the contacts you must have and yeah, the, the look, sort of knowledge and background you have. I'm sure there's some watch lists out there. I'm not too much trouble, but um, yeah, I prefer to fly under the radar. And I wish I had have uh, used a pseudonym. That would have been good from the <laughs> from the get go. Uh, it's, ne- it's, it's too late now. It's too late. We have ways and means of finding out who these authors are. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was—I uh, have been talking to James Phelan, again, the agency, and it's released by Hachet. And I was speaking with a Shokuve Azar, The Enlightenment of the Green Age Tree. Fabulous book. Right. Fabulous book.